Welcome to Vertical Life Church. Uh, how are you all today? You doing good? You awake? I'm excited about City Walk. I, I love watching that video because that lady's testimony is my testimony. You know, I grew up in a, in a church background where to pray for miracles was actually asking the impossible. You know, we believed God could do anything. We just never really believed he would do anything through, through us. And the more I get into scripture and the more I see the life that he has intended for his children, the more I think we've missed out on uh, and some amazing experiences in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited to partner with God in uh, the mission to build his kingdom. We just sang that song, Build Your Kingdom Here. Well, his, his intention on how to build that kingdom is through his church, is to, to prepare the way of the Lord. And we've been left here uh, in preparation of his return when the kingdom will be fully established. And so I believe that this is going to be an exciting time, not just for us to see God do things, but for us to be changed in the process. You know, it's said all the time, especially around the holidays, around Christmas time, it's better to give than receive, right? Because when you give, not only are you blessing people, but you're blessed by those that you give to. Uh, our ministry at My Brother's Keeper, going downtown Flint to the homeless shelter, I think we get more out of that ministry than maybe even some of the men do because we are giving of ourselves and watching how God is working in that ministry. And so the mission isn't for us to go out and do miracles. The mission is for us to go out and see lives changed. And if God does miracles along the way, that's just an added bonus. And so uh, definitely if you want to be a part of that, make sure to sign up so we can get you included there. Uh, just to kind of recap where we've been over the last couple of weeks, we began this new series called Upon This Rock on Easter Sunday. Uh, week one, we talked about how God, uh, in the past and through the Old Testament, was going to implement a plan to redeem the world. I don't know if you know this, but our world is pretty jacked up, right? It's pretty messed up. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's sin that's just running rampant along the world. And God loved us so much that he loved us uh, to the point that he wasn't content with letting us exist in this broken world, that he wasn't content with letting us fall prey to our sinful nature. And so he decided he was going to redeem the world. He was going to send a Savior who would be the cornerstone, the cornerstone, the foundation for salvation and faith in all the world. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the evidence that we needed to know who that cornerstone was. Who was going to be that foundation? Who was going to be the Savior? And how, through our faith, could we be made right with God? Now, last week we talked about God's mysterious plan of salvation. The mysterious plan of what he was going to do, what he was going to build on that cornerstone. We know the cornerstone was the foundation stone of uh, ancient structures. They would lay the, the foundation stone first, and then they would build on top of that. And so God, using this imagery of the cornerstone, was revealing to us that he wasn't just going to send Christ, but that he was going to build something on top of that faith. And we understand in, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said that what was going to be built on that cornerstone was going to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the church is not a building, but as Jesus revealed to us, it is an unstoppable army comprised of all who believe in the Savior. That every one of us, Jesus didn't come to build buildings, he came to build people. And so God has placed Jesus as that foundation stone, but he uses us, those who believe, those who follow Jesus, to build upon that foundation to fulfill his promise that the church would defeat the powers of hell. That's his promise. 
So he's prepared a specific place for each of us within the church. Uh, again, I, I love how that, uh, the lady in that, in that video, uh, the, the normal Christian life video said, I didn't think this was my ministry, right? We all recognize God has a niche for us. He has a, a place as part of the church that he's gifted and prepared us for. Uh, and we have a, sp- a specific calling. He has a purpose uh, and calling for each and every one of us on the individual level, not just the corporate level. But many times, as we discussed last week, because we're not perfect and at times we experience moments of weakness, you know, even coming to church this morning, I'm sure many of you felt some moments of weakness. We fall into temptation. We have struggle. We have strife, right? Because we're not perfect people, failure is inevitable. And when we fail... What happens? Fear, fear begins to fill our hearts. And it, fear begins to hold us back from pursuing the calling that God has placed on our lives. Because when fear fills our hearts, we begin to feel unworthy and no longer capable of living according to the calling God has placed on our lives. And we looked at the life of Peter because Peter was instrumental in this revelation of the church. We discovered through the life of Peter that failure isn't the end. Failure is just the mechanism that God leverages to mold us into who he's called us to be. And so if we don't experience weakness, if we don't experience failure in our lives, if we're continually always doing everything right and, and, and perfect, then we don't need the grace of God. There, there'd be no need for it. But we do need the grace of God because we're not perfect. We are weak. We need his grace. And the good thing is, is that it's his grace that empowers us to get back up after we've fallen and keep working toward the calling that has, he's spoken over our lives. Instead of encountering condemnation when we fail, we encounter his grace in a second chance. You see, our calling isn't dependent on our perfection, our skill level, our abilities, It's dependent on his amazing love. God's love never fails. And together, as his people, as his church, as we all walk in our callings, the things that he's called or spoken over our lives, we will be the unstoppable army that Jesus called the church. And today, we're going to shift focus a little bit. We're going to talk about unconventional warfare. Because we are an army. We are an army at war. The church is a heavenly army at war in this world. The first thing I want want to look at is that if the church is God's army, that that means Satan leads a terrorist organization. Satan is a terrorist. See, many times in combat, after an army wins a war... It takes some time for that message to get out to the rest of the battalions and militias out on the battlefield. Uh, many stories are recounted in World War I after the declaration of victory of the Allied forces was made in World War I. Still many battles were being waged after the fact because the armies didn't know that the war was over. You know, they were still fighting. And in our day, as we look at recent wars like the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, even after we defeated Saddam Hussein in the Iraqi armies, even after we overthrew the Taliban as the U.S. uh, Army uh, was victorious in Afghanistan, our troops had to remain in that territory to hold the ground that was captured to keep it from falling back into the hands of the enemy. This is just uh, natural in warfare. Without holding the ground, without maintaining a presence in those nations, the enemy would just be free to move back in and set up their territory again. Now, if we relate this to our spiritual life and this war that we're in as the church, Jesus won the war. 
when he conquered sin and death on the cross and through his resurrection. The declaration that the war is over has been made. Jesus is victorious. But Jesus left. He went to heaven. And he left us here as his church to hold the ground. When Jesus said he would build his church, he didn't mean a religious building. He meant an army of disciples. And by winning the war, he left his army behind to hold the ground to keep the enemy from coming power to coming to power again in the world. And so one of the things we need to get right in our brains is we get this twisted so often, and Satan does a great job of helping us think this way, is that the church is not fighting for victory. The church is fighting from victory. Right? We're not fighting to win the war. We've won. We are fighting to hold ground, to stand for what we have been uh, given through Jesus Christ. And so... The way Satan gets us to kind of have a mind shift of really uh, going from feeling victorious to feeling like we are struggling for victory is that he employs terrorist tactics to keep you from believing in the victory that's already yours. You know, the things that you struggle with, the, the issues that you face, he brings those up and makes you feel like you don't have victory in those when Christ has already given you the victory. Think about what a terrorist does. You think about Al-Qaeda and ISIS and these other organizations. They lie and wait. They plot. They wait to expose a weakness. And then when they find the weakness they can expose, they strike. They try to harm innocent civilians and create as much damage and chaos as they can in an effort to inflict fear in the hearts of the enemy. That is what they do. They want you to become afraid, not knowing where the attack's coming from, not knowing how much damage is going to happen, not knowing what the result of the conflict is. Now, if you are the terrorist, when you get your enemy to be filled with fear, when they become afraid, what do they do? They stop advancing like the victor in the offensive position, and they start bunkering down to take a defensive position leaving all the open territory around them vulnerable for you to take back again. This is what happens. We saw this in Iraq whenever our, our troops uh, withdrew from certain areas. The terrorists took their positions again and began fighting from those areas. And so Satan, the terrorist, he brings temptations. He exploits weaknesses. He causes harm and pain to rise up in your life. So your confidence will be shaken, your heart will be filled with fear, and instead of fighting from victory on the offensive, you'll go into the defensive looking for victory. It's a mind game. It's a battle in your mind. And we end up surrendering ground out of fear, giving up or giving our already defeated foe room to organize, to strategize, and implement more terrorist attacks in our lives. Paul the Apostle, he talks about uh, this issue. He says, when you sin, you give ground or you give a foothold to the enemy. You give him a place in your life to unleash his attacks. And the more ground we surrender as the church, the less victory we can enjoy in our lives. The second thing I want to look at is that we are an army that fights with unconventional warfare. We're not strapping on bombs. We're not getting our AKs out and loading our grenades up and going and, and fighting this war. We, we're fighting a different kind of war. There is a constant battle happening over your mind. Satan attacks your mind because your mind will affect your faith and your decisions. 
And so he's constantly coming at you with uh, attacks towards your mind. And the reason is, is that if he can get you to believe in his lies, if he can get you to buy into the lies that he is unleashing into the world, he can take your life captive. And like, he can hold you up in a, a mental prison or a spiritual prison, or the scripture calls it a stronghold. Think about the lies about self-worth. If you do not value yourself... You will allow things to transpire to you or invite things into your life that reflect how much you don't value yourself. I think of uh, many uh, young people that have been abused. And, you know, Tony and, and others had a ministry where they would go into strip clubs and, and minister to women in the sex industry. And so many times we'd hear stories of, of things that they would do for money. And you're like, the only reason why you're able to do that is you don't value Yourself, You don't value what God has made in you and put you into that place. And abuse and other things contribute to that mindset. You believe lies about your capabilities, your skills, and your talents. Well, I'm not good enough to do what they're doing, just like the lady in the video. She didn't believe that she had what it took to walk in the same calling as someone else. And when we don't believe the truth about what God has made in us, what he's called us to be and do, it will prevent us from walking in confidence and doing what the Lord has said. Uh, when we believe lies about God's love for you, that changes the whole uh, concept of your relationship with God. If you're constantly trying to earn his love, you're constantly trying to earn your way into his good graces, you're going to constantly be in a state of negativity. You're getting, everything is going to be negative. I'm not good enough. Oh, I did this. Oh, I must made a mistake again. Oh, and you're going to bring this negativity in your life when you don't understand that God's love for you has nothing to do about you. But it has to do about his grace and, and who he is. When you believe lies about God's best for you, you'll make decisions in your life with your finances, with your relationships, with, with the way you structure your home, with the way you parent. It affects everything about the decisions you make because when we believe the lies of the enemy, we become trapped in a spiritual stronghold and many times we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. We know we have problems but we don't know where these problems are stemming from. And the problem with us is, is we usually only look on the surface of our problems. Oh, I'm struggling with this addiction. Oh, I can't get along with my husband. Oh, my kids don't listen to me. We only look at the surface of our problems, and because we only go surface level, we'll never get to the source of the issues that we're wrestling with that cause us so much trouble. You know, I think of the story in the Old Testament, David and Goliath, very famous story. And uh, here you have this young man who's the youngest of all of his brothers. He was the smallest of all of his brothers. And uh, he was out tending sheep. He was a shepherd. And all of his brothers were off at war. They were part of the Israeli army. And, uh, and one day as, as the army was at camp, they were facing off against the Philistines. They, they were kind of doing some uh, different, what we consider different uh, but it was common back then. They would actually set up on either side of a ravine, and each army would send out their champion, and whatever champion won would actually win the war for that army. And so they were kind of staring each other down, giving each other the, the stink eye, so to speak, from each side of the camp. And uh, while they were encamped waiting to see who Israel would send forth as their champion, uh, David's dad had this idea to send David to the front lines to bring some supplies to his brothers. And so he loaded him up and sent him on their way. And 
as David is entering the camp of the Israelites, he sees that Goliath, the Philistine champion, is out there taunting Israel, making fun of not only the military, the army, but also their God. And so David starts asking this question, like, who is this Philistine? Who is this guy that is mocking the armies of God? And Because he's like, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be happening. He gives the food and supplies to his brothers, and his brothers tell him, man, you should just go home. Don't worry about this Philistine. We got this. But David wouldn't let it be put to rest. And so because uh, the word got to King Saul that David was saying that he'd be willing to fight the champion, Saul brings him into the tent. And then Saul looks at David, and he's like, you think you have a chance to fight this king? I mean, Saul doubted him because of his age and his size. You're just a boy. You're a teenager, and you want to fight this 10-foot big son of a you-know-what and, and that can carry a sword that weighs more than most of us, you know, and there's no chance. You have no way that you're going to beat this guy. He doubted him because of his age and his size. The thing is that Saul was only looking at the struggle with a worldly perspective. He was only looking at it with a worldly perspective. Saul looked at David, and he said, David, you know what? You are not enough. Have you seen the giant? Have you seen this guy? You, in and of yourself, are not enough to win this battle. And I think this happens so many times in our lives with the struggles that we face when it looks at you know, us taking on a challenge or pursuing a dream. We, we hear these lies of the enemy in our world that says, you know what? You are not enough. You need to become more. You need to be a better husband. You need to be a better spouse. You need to be a better parent. You need to be a better this, that, or the other. You're not enough. And that creates fear in our hearts. And see, David, he could have been just like the rest of them. He could have walked away from the battlefield, trembling in fear, believing that lie that he was not enough. But see, the truth is, is we are not enough. We are not enough. But guess what? God is more than enough. He's more than enough. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? God lives in here. And he that lives in you makes you enough to fight the the Philistine, to fight the giant. And as Saul was doubting David, David responds to him in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. He says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. You see, Saul was saying, David, you're not enough. You need to become something more. Saul even tried to get David to wear his armor, the armor that was purpose, uh, that was tailored for the king in order to make him something more according to the world standards of what he should be to fight this war. And David's like, no, I don't need all that because really the battle isn't about me or what I could do. The struggle isn't about me. It's about something greater than me. And matter of fact, I've faced impossible odds before. You look at me as a teenager, you look at me as a young boy, would you think I've cu- I could have uh, killed a lion? Would you think I could have killed a bear? No. But guess what? God did it. God did it through me. And if he could do that through me, he could do this through me as well. David recognized that there is more to this life than what meets the eye. And when you recognize that the battles that you face isn't with what's in front of you, but it's with what is behind what is in front of you, then it changes the way you fight. It changes your strategy. It changes your perception of what's going on around you. And see, David knew that his battle with Goliath, it wasn't with Goliath. It was with the spiritual force 
behind him. The force that was wielding fear in the Israelite army, in the Israelite camp. It was holding everyone captive. Fear made the Israelite army tremble and hide. The fear made King Saul hide in a tent. He put out a, a hit on Goliath and, and created a large reward for someone who would be brave enough to take him on because he was in fear for his life. And see, David knew that the war wasn't with Goliath. It was with what was behind Goliath. And the thing is, is David, he could have had all the tools that the army had. He could have put on the armor of the king. He could have had all the best weaponry. And yet he would have been just like the rest of them, afraid and running. He could have had everything they had. Or he could let go of what seemed rational in that moment and trust that God was enough for him to conquer the giant. And he did. He chose faith over fear. And instead of fighting with what Saul wanted him to fight with and what the world wanted him to measure up to, what did he do? He fought with what he already had. And what he had was what his father had given him. As a shepherd, he had his sling. And we do that, don't we, in the midst of our battles and our struggles? When we feel like we're missing something, we look for answers in the world. We look for some guru to give us a pep talk. We look for the latest and greatest book that's been released on that issue. We're searching for answers of, of how we can overcome these things in our lives. But really all we need is what God has already given us. So David, using what God had given him, he goes to the stream, he pulls out some stones, he walks up to that giant, and he kills him dead in his tracks. You see, when we encounter trouble, we often look for the rational, popular solutions, solutions that the world tells us that we need to fix our marriages or fix our relationships, fix our temptations, but really what the world just offers us are excuses. The world just offers us excuses as to why we're in the struggles that we're in to begin with. You shouldn't have to work at that just divorce if you're unhappy. You deserve better. Don't fight your temptations. Yeah, the Bible says that's sin, but don't fight your temptations. That's just how God made you. No one should be able to tell you how to live your life. That's not sexual deviancy. That's just orientation, this, that, and the other. Who cares what decisions you made in your past? The past is past. Just embrace it and be proud of it. It's who you are. You're not failing as a parent. Your kid is just A, B, C, D, F, and G and can't help it. Drug him and move on. So who cares if you're not ready? It's only a fetus. Get rid of it. You can have another one when your life gets to a better place. The world offers us excuses, not solutions. Our culture and our world would rather us give up and give in then fight for the blessed life that God intended for us to live. The philosophy of the world is why fight it all? Just embrace. You only live once. But that philosophy does not bring freedom. It brings bondage. You don't just treat symptoms of a disease. You have to treat the cause. Imagine if you were bleeding from the, your ears and your nose and you went to the hospital and the doctor just gave you a tissue and said, call me in the morning. You don't treat the symptoms of a disease. You get to the cause. Only once you have conquered the cause will you see a relief of the symptoms or they'll just keep coming back. And this is how we're placed in spiritual bondage in many areas of our lives. We develop 
and can't beat these habitual sins, but we just try to manage them on a symptom level instead of figuring out why it's there to begin with. And as a result, we continue to fail because this, the cause isn't conquered. It's only managed. I mean, do you wonder why you're mad all the time? Do you wonder why you're always stressed out or, or full of anxiety or why you're depressed? Do you wonder why you struggle with thoughts of inadequacy and lack confidence? Do you wonder why that is or do you just try to medicate to get over it? We medicate versus digging deep to discover the root cause of our issues. And so it keeps us in this bondage to continue to struggle with these issues for the rest of our lives. And we ask the question, why is this the case? Why does this happen? It's because sin opens the door to oppression from the enemy, and fear, which is his primary tactic, is deployed to stifle your victory. When you become afraid of the truth, instead of killing the source and pressing on in victory, you just barely hang on and try to manage it. Instead of feeling powerful, you feel defeated. And Satan knows that when you feel defeated, you will lack the strength to fight back. And our problem is, is that we just want to put a band-aid on a festering wound. We don't want to treat the source of our issues. We just want a quick and easy fix and ignore the deeply rooted struggles. And as long as we only treat the symptoms, we won't be free or we won't free ourselves from the bondage that the enemy has been able to bring into our lives, the bondage of which God has already delivered us. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that the captives, these are prisoners of war, this is physical or spiritual, that the captives will be released. This is guaranteed. Freedom is assured. It says the blind will see. This is physical or spiritual blindness. You will see with new eyes that the oppressed, those that are in bondage, physical or spiritual bondage, will be set free. This is why Jesus came. To free us from the attack and from the bondage and the captivity of the enemy. Jesus has already won the victory. We just have to start walking in that victory. And as we walk in victory, we need to understand who our enemy is and how to fight him. David didn't take the king's sword. He didn't wear the king's armor to fight. He didn't use conventional warfare to fight this unconventional war. He used what he already had. He went to the stream where he found a stone that would empower his sling. And with the weapon he already had in his arsenal, he took the stone he pulled from the stream and he slew the enemy. And this is a symbol of our Christian life as we face the battle with our enemy. We can either try to fight, fitting into what the world deems to be appropriate and remain in our bondage, or we can go to the stream where we can find living water and pull out the foundation stone of our faith that is steadfast, unmovable, unshakable, that will empower what God has already given us to win the battles that we fix. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 4, Paul tells the church of Corinth, he says, We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. As the church of Jesus Christ, we fight an unconventional war with unconventional means. If you want to press forward and walk in victory, then you need to stop 
trying to walk in armor that will leave you vulnerable and walk in the armor of God. Third thing we're going to look at is the armor of God today. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians 6, or the verses will also be on the screen. We're going to kind of go through this section by section. But here, beginning in verse 10, Paul begins to end his letter to the Ephesians here, and he says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power. A question I have for you today is, do you know you can be strong in the Lord? Do you know that? You can be strong in the Lord. Do you know that right now you can tap into the very power of the creator of the universe? This is a possibility for you. How many of you woke up today, show of hands, how many of you woke up today feeling strong in the Lord? Not very many. How many of you woke up today celebrating the victory God has already given you? Again, not very many. See, the sad but true fact is that for many Christians, myself included, we celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday to remind ourselves that we can have victory when we should be celebrating every day the reality that we already have victory. We have victory. It's ours. It's won. So how do you live strong in the Lord? How do you live mighty in his power? Well, Paul tells us, verse 11, he says, Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. See, before you can cure the symptoms, you need to know the cause. And before you can know how to win the war, you need to know who your enemy is. David's enemies manifested as flesh and blood foes, but they were not the enemy. They were only the vessel of the enemy. And the battle, we battle against people and situations, but they are not the enemy. They are just the vessel of the enemy. You see, when we fight physical wars with physical means, we will walk away with physical scars. But when we fight physical wars with spiritual means, we unleash the power of God to change hearts and lives, especially ours in the process. Obedience to God isn't to keep us in his good graces. It's to keep us in the center of his blessing so he can work out all things together for our good. Verse 13, Paul continues. He says, Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor... So you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Notice here that he says, wear the armor prior to the battle. Many of us, we wait to armor up whenever the battle comes. Here Paul is saying, armor up before the battle, in anticipation for the battle. Why is that? It's because the church is not on defense. The church is on offense. We're already armored up looking for the fight because we're winning this war. Victory is ours. He says, then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Why? Because you're standing on the cornerstone, which is Christ the Lord, the rock of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, he says, stand your ground. Right? And when I hear him say, stand your ground, I'm reminded of the movie Braveheart. Now, that iconic scene where William Wallace is riding his horse, giving his, his brothers in arms this pep talk about, you know, giving, they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. I'm not going to chant it because I'll embarrass myself. But, but that's kind of what I think of here, this last stand. And, and he says, they can take our lives, but not our freedom. Why? 
Because no matter what enemy is in the land, the land belonged to the Scots. It was their inheritance. It was from their people. It belonged to them no matter what battles they, they faced. And here Paul says, stand your ground. Stand your ground, church. Why? Because this is your land. God won the land for you. You have the deed. This is your land. Don't let the enemy come take from you what God rightfully won for you. Stand your ground. He goes on, and the question is, how do we do this? He says, by putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. He says, put on truth. If you remember Jesus' words as he's teaching, he says, if you remain in the truth, the truth will what? Set you free. Remain in the truth, and it will set you free. Truth is what defeats the lies of the enemy, the lies he uses to place you in spiritual bondage. Truth is what keeps your mind right so that you can be wise and make right decisions. James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter to the church, he said, don't just listen to God's word, but put it into action. In other words, what good is knowing the truth if you don't do anything with it? Just knowing the truth is not enough. And this is why Paul ties truth and righteousness together. Because righteousness is the result of walking in the truth of God and living according to his statutes. That's why they are tied together. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 119, verses 1 through 7, he says, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. And here he kind of laments, he kind of bemoans his, his weakness and his frailty. He says, oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. He's saying the truth is those who are inte have integrity, those who honor God with their lives, they're the ones that are filled with joy. And how I wish I was like that all of the time. He's revealing some humanity here that he knows that this is a promise of God, but yet there will be times that we mess up, that we show weakness. He says, oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. And the question is, is why would he make that statement? Verse 6, he answers. He says, because then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life to your commands. Why would I not be ashamed? Because I don't have anything to fear. There's no condemnation. There's no consequence. There's no remorse. There's no negativity because I'm following and honoring God with my life. Verse 7, he says, as I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. The body armor in your suit of armor, your coat of armor, protects us from being dealt blows that could strike vital organs and cause a slow and agonizing death. And the same is true for righteousness. It protects us from experiencing the pain of our own decisions that could have devastating consequences in our lives and in the lives of of those around us. You think of those that are addicted to drugs or alcohol. You know, it starts off as something innocent and then it begins to take over their whole life. And they become someone they never thought that they would become and soon they begin to steal from people in order to find their next fix or their next high. And then they begin to steal from their own family because it becomes easier. And then they become willing to maybe become physical or act out in violence in order to find their next fix or, or compromise their integrity in order to find their next fix. This happens all of the time when we don't choose righteousness. 
in our lives. You think of people who live a promiscuous lifestyle, who have sex outside of marriage. They don't live according to the design that God has for human sexuality. And, and if they don't, uh, not only uh, just create damage in their own spirits because of giving themselves away to person after person, but there's a chance that they could contract a sexually transmitted disease and then pass that STD on to someone else. Or they could get pregnant before they uh, desire to, and if they don't sacrifice that child in order to cover their sin through an abortion, they will raise that child in a broken home situation. And statisticians tell us that children that are born in broken homes are, are way more likely to show antisocial behavior, such as dropping out of school, drug addiction, uh, uh, suicide, and the like. And so we have just this reality that we can see in our own life, in our own culture, when people choose to not walk in his truth and let that play out in righteousness in their lives. Truth and righteousness go hand in hand. It's not enough to know what the Bible says. You need to do what the Bible says. If you're not walking in righteousness, it means that you are absent of his truth. And if you are absent of his truth, you will make decisions that invite the enemy into your life to bring destruction into your sphere of influence. Destruction that robs you of the joy that comes from living righteously. Psalmist said, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. We need to know the truth so living righteously can protect us from harm. Ephesians 6.15, Paul says, For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Now, the good news here is capitalized because it refers to the gospel. And so the question is, why does the gospel bring peace? How do I get peace from the gospel? Well, it's pretty simple because it is by his grace that I'm saved. I don't have to rely on me and my goodness and my abilities, knowing that I've done nothing to receive it, nor do I need to do anything to maintain it. The gospel is God's message of good news for those who have fallen prey to their sinful nature. That forgiveness is not only possible, but it's available. That by receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior, my relationship God with God is restored, and I have no fear of judgment in this life. Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This brings Peace. It lifts this weight of responsibility off of my shoulders. Peace comes because I have a holy confidence that casts out, casts out all fear because God's perfect love casts out all fear. So when you understand the message of the gospel, when you understand what the good news actually is, you understand what perfect love is. And when I know who I am in Jesus Christ, and I believe in who I am in Jesus Christ, I can have peace to know I am secure in the love of God, and that can never be taken away. No one can pluck me out of the Father's hand. The problem is, as many of us don't know who we are. Or we know who we are, we just don't believe in who we are in Jesus. But also I see here the gospel is tied to feet. It implies that as I am secure in who I am because of what Jesus has done for me, I have the confidence to take that message to others and spread that peace that I have to those who are far from him. It keeps me moving forward on the advance as the church is Jesus, of Jesus Christ, knowing that the good news is the power of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. See, I can live in peace and be the bringer of peace to all the world as I preach the gospel. Verse 16 says, In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows 
of the devil. Again, Satan is a terrorist who tries to exploit weaknesses. And if you notice here that the arrows aren't a just a one-hit wound, right? They're fiery arrows. They are fiery. The hope is, is that whatever they strike not only will do damage, but that it will ignite a raging fire of destruction in your life. That's what he intends to happen when sin comes into your life. It's not that you just fail one time. It's that, that a sin is an open door to a lifetime of failure, a lifetime of weakness, a lifetime of destruction. And so as the enemy attacks, we need to remember God's promises. Faith is our shield. It protects us from being damaged by the enemy's schemes and attacks. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the, in the desert for 40 days, he was able to withstand the attacks of Satan because he knew the truth. It produced in him a life of righteous living, and he stood firm on the promises of God. And when the enemy brings an attack, your faith will protect you from all harm in Jesus' name. Now, when I was a child, and I still see this kind of in my kids today, I remember when we used to, like, play fight, we would, like, pretend, and we would, like, get Nerf swords or Nerf guns, and, and we, would, we would just kind of, like, play war and fight. We would all kind of go around, and we would choose what superhero we were going to be. I, I don't see my kids really do that as much as like claim their superpower. There's so many superheroes nowadays, it's hard to choose from, you know, but we would choose which superhero we wanted to be. And when I was younger, the, the hero everyone wanted to be was RoboCop. You remember RoboCop, right? I mean, that guy was bad. You know, he was awesome. It really was not a lot of fun to be stuck in a robot suit probably, but, but he was the guy we wanted to be. Why? Because he was armored from head to toe. He was invincible. It doesn't matter what gun you shot at him, bullets just bounced off. And then he had that sweet gun that kind of popped out the side of his leg, and he had, like, perfect aim with every shot. I mean, this was like, the, he was like the coolest guy ever. And so when we would play, we would choose RoboCop. And you were mad if you didn't get to be RoboCop. Why? Because that meant you weren't invincible, right? You wanted to be RoboCop because you wanted to be invincible. And here Paul is telling the church, he's like, your faith is your shield. That is what protects you. That's what makes you invincible. When you believe in the promises of God and you let his truth and righteousness lead your life, you become invincible to the attacks of the enemy. Not only that, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God, he says, In the coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Here uh, the prophet is prophesying of a day when we will wage war against the enemy, when the church will advance on ground that Satan has occupied. And he says no weapon formed against you will succeed. Why? Because our faith is in Jesus Christ. He says these benefits are enjoyed by who? The servants of the Lord, by the church, by those who trust in him. And then he makes this incredible statement. He says, their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. This isn't a question if it's going to happen. God spoke it. He said it. He declared it. It's a for sure thing. 
We can march forward in victory, not fearing what the devil will throw at us because our vindication comes from God. There is no weapon formed against you that can prosper if you're walking in the faith of Jesus Christ. See, as the church, your faith will be tested, but it will endure because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Nothing the enemy throws at you will prosper because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And the thing about our faith is Jesus said that if your faith was just the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to a mountain and it would move from its place, which tells us that, that the greater faith you have, the greater the works you can do, which means the more faith you have, the larger your shield is and the more invincible you become. See, the reason why Satan wants us filled with fear is because fear is a faith killer. And the smaller our faith is, the less we have to deflect his fiery arrows. Verse 17, he says, put on salvation as your helmet. See, the way to be saved is through placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Faith is the catalyst that begins this armor-wearing process. Once you launch your faith in Jesus, he hands you the helmet of salvation. And this is important. I'm going to let my inner geek, you know, kind of rise up again. Uh, when I would play video games a lot in, like, high school, the, the Xbox was revolutionary when it, when it came out because not only could you play the state-of-the-art video games, but they had a way for you to link your console to other people. And so you could have a group of friends, like up to 16 people, all play the same game at the same time. This was new because before that it was only like two people at a time or maybe up to four, depending on what, what uh, game you had. And uh, when I got the Xbox, Halo had just come out. And Halo was like the game. Everyone wanted to play. It was a first-person shooter. You're a, you're a military guy, you know, fighting uh, aliens and stuff like that. But in the Halo game, you could play, like, capture the flag, your team against somebody else's team. And there are lots of little mini-games that you could play. And so what we would do is we would have Halo parties, and we would uh, spend 24 hours playing video games. Overnight, we'd go all night long. We would eat pizza and pop and all this stuff. We were the biggest nerds on the planet, but, but we would have a lot of fun doing this. And the thing about first-person shooters is, you know, you're looking at a screen and all you can see of your body is the gun. The first-person shooters, whenever you would shoot somebody in the body, it would take down their energy level. And you'd have to shoot them about two or three times probably to, to, to kill them. Now, if you were to shoot them in the head, that was an instant kill. I mean, it was guaranteed, and so I always liked being the sniper because I could hide uh, where no one could find me, and I could use my scope to, like, peg people off, and I was, that's always what you tried to do. You tried to shoot them in the head because it was an instant kill. Now, salvation, if you think about that in reality, the salvation, the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your head is protected, which means the enemy cannot take you out. He cannot peg you off and knock you out. You are protected. When your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, your most vulnerable asset is protected, which is your mind. Without the mind, you can't make the conscious decision to trust in Jesus. You know, Paul tells us in the New Testament that Satan's work in the world is to blind the minds of those who don't believe. Why? It's because he knows that the mind is the doorway to the heart, and the heart is where faith is born. So if he can put your mind in bondage, he can trap your mind in captivity, then he can rob you of the ability to place your faith in Jesus. 
Because the reality is, when you choose Jesus, you will begin to think and act like a free man. Because you're free, not a slave. Satan wants to enslave, but Jesus came to set you free. When your mind is filled with the truth of God, then there is no room for the lies of the enemy. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you become saved. Jesus begins to renew your mind as you launch your spiritual journey. He begins to change the way you think so that your thoughts will be in line with his thoughts, which will be founded on his truth that will produce righteousness in your life. You see, your head determines the direction of your life. If your head is wrong, your life will be wrong. When your head is protected with salvation, you will follow in the footsteps of the Lord. The second part of that passage, he says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice that God's armor isn't just to defend us. He's not just giving us armor for defenses. We are given a weapon against the enemy because we are on the march. We are walking forward. We are on the offense. We are not defending a building. We are an army marching on a building. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which means we are meant to break in and plunder the realm of the enemy. The church is fighting from victory, not for victory. We are founded on the cornerstone, which is Christ the Lord, and we advance as his church, taking back the ground the enemy has illegally occupied for far too long. The weapon God has given us, like David, that can't be overcome by the enemy is the word of God. Scripture says his word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than even the sharpest two-edged sword. His word defeats the power and screams of the enemy every time. The word of God is like a spiritual A-bomb on the lips of the believer. When Satan attacked Christ in the desert, he declared the word of God and ran the enemy away. And When we are being attacked, we as the church, we fight back declaring his word. Because where the light shines, darkness flees. Paul's final word to the church in Ephesus, verse 18, he says, Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. See, alertness and prayer go hand in hand. You can't be alert if you're not a person of prayer. Prayer is our willful connection to God. Through salvation, our relationship is restored, but through prayer, we are connected to God. And the more connected to God you are, the more you will discern the war going on around you. And Paul, as he's talking about prayer, he doesn't say, pray the same thing out of repetition and religion. He doesn't say, get in the habit of always praying at the same time every day and always praying the same things every day. He says, pray in the Spirit. That word for Spirit refers to two things. It refers to the Holy Spirit and it refers to your rational spirit, the power by which human beings feel, think, and decide, which means when you pray, pray with all that you are. Use your heart, engage your heart and your mind. And as you pray, guess what? The Holy Spirit will also pray with you. We're told that the Holy Spirit will go to God and He will groan for us. He will pray for us and intercede for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. When we are engaging God with our hearts and our minds, the Holy Spirit empowers our prayers and petitions God on our behalf. This is why true prayer is powerful. That's why we shouldn't take prayer for granted. And Paul says, stay alert and be persistent, which means one prayer is not enough. 
When you're facing a battle, when you're facing uh, a giant, when you're facing a stronghold or a struggle or a captivity, one prayer is not enough. Be persistent. This is about having a life of prayer, not a time of prayer. Which also means you don't wear the armor of God by chance. It doesn't just happen. What good is wearing the helmet of salvation if the rest of your body is exposed? What good is a sword if you have no armor? What good is a shield if you have no sword? It takes intentional persistence to wear and upkeep this armor. Now, in the military, they have strict rules about how to wear the uniform. Part of my day job, I go and do different career fairs at different high schools, and oftentimes there'll be men and women representing different branches of the armed forces, and I'll talk to them about their, their uniforms, and they tell me that not only do they have to wear the uniform a certain way, but they also get checked to make sure that they're continuing to wear it a certain way, that it remains up to code. And here I believe what Paul is saying to us about the armor of God is, first, if you want to live in victory, you need to put on the armor. If you want to weather every attack and you want to come out victorious on the other side, if you want to take more ground than what you surrender, make sure your armor stays up to code. Be persistent. Stay alert. Make sure that you're having your brothers back at the same time because no one gets left behind in this war of the church of Jesus Christ. No one is left to fight alone. The church is a movement, not a building. The church is a people, not a denomination. And if we're going to be unstoppable, if we're going to continue to advance, we need to be persistent in making sure our armor stays up to code and that we have each other's back, holding each other accountable, making sure everyone is walking in the armor of God and being unstoppable in their faith. So we don't fight conventional wars because the war we are in is out of this world, but this war we are in is being fought in this world. An unconventional war requires unconventional warfare. If we trust in Jesus, the foundation of our faith, we recognize the power comes from him, is sustained by him, our gifts and callings will never be withdrawn from him, and we wake up each day putting on the armor of God, hiding his truth in our hearts, walking in righteousness, living in peace through the good news and taking the gospel to others while we defend one another from the attacks of spiritual terrorism, taking back the ground as we wield the very word of God. It will be then that we'll be living like the church, the unstoppable church that Jesus promised. There are some of you here today that you have been living in defeat. Your outlook on life is so negative and hopeless, you don't even remember the last time that you felt joy. What you're hoping for is victory, but you're not living in the victory God has already given you. Because Satan has gotten you to believe so many lies, and those lies have manifested in decisions and situations that have brought nothing but pain into your life. And as a result, he's robbed you of your confidence in your faith. Jesus came so that you could have life, so that you don't have to live like that anymore and believe like that anymore. Jesus came to free you from those past mistakes and walk through those consequences with you so he can bring about good in your life, good out of the pain. 
Today, if you want to experience the victory that God gave you, then it begins with a wardrobe change. Put down the chains of the enemy and rise up in the armor of God. You've got to wear the armor that's right for the war that we're in. You've got to go to the source where you're going to find the rock that beats the giant in your life every time. Stop fighting with your husband and get on your knees to fight for your husband. Stop fighting with your kids and get on your knees and start fighting for your kids. Stop fighting with your parents and get on your knees and start fighting for your parents. Stop fighting with your boss or your coworker, that person that just is driving you crazy in your life and get on your knees and start fighting for that person in your life. It's time for the church to wage an unconventional war in this unconventional time in our lives. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And today, if you are done walking in defeat, if you are ready to walk in victory, if you're done making excuses and are ready to make a change, then I'm going to invite you to turn this front altar, this front row of seats into an old-fashioned altar and pour your heart out to God. Claim that armor that he has given you through the cross of Jesus Christ and begin today to walk in victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray in this place, God, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I'm not one that struggles with confidence, that struggles with fear. God, but you have promised and you have planned so much more for your church. God, you have given us overwhelming victory through Jesus Christ. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can overcome anything that the enemy throws against us. And I just thank you for all that you've done and all that you are. And now in just a moment, God, I pray that all fear would be expelled from this place. God, that not a person in this room would have a shred of embarrassment, that would have a shred of, of inferiority, and that whatever you were doing in their heart, they would respond by coming down and pouring their hearts out for you, claiming the victory that you've won for them. God, the works of the enemy are done now in the name of Jesus. God, the bondage of the enemy is done now in the name of Jesus. That abuse that happened 10 years ago, the pain of that is over, and the healing of that has become. God, those that have struggled with addictions, those addictions are gone now in the name of Jesus, and victory is theirs through Christ the Lord. God, we claim this for our church and for our people, and we determine in our hearts to take that message out into the streets and bring deliverance to those who are far from you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.